Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. On this day between the South Carolina and Michigan primaries, here are three things that I noticed from the South Carolina exit polls on Saturday that might be worth mentioning. I haven't heard these talked about very much, just the fact that Trump beat Haley by 20 points, but she's staying in the race. But listen to these contrasts. Around two-thirds of Trump voters in the exit polls said they want a national abortion ban covering all or most abortions. Those were the Trump voters. About the same share of Haley voters, about two-thirds of them, oppose a national ban. That's a really big split, right? And maybe a defining split in 2024 between two pretty big blocks of Republicans. Could mean something in November for the general election with um, national limits on abortion being reportedly considered by Trump as a campaign platform. Another one was about the economy. And listen to this disconnect. Only about one out of every six of all the South Carolina primary voters polled. So a tiny percentage of voters said the nation's economy is in good shape. But on their own personal finances, about 80% said their own financial situations are good or at least neutral. So their perception is so much worse than their experience of the economy. One more. The number one quality that Trump voters were looking for in a candidate was a fighter for people like me, a fighter for people like me. Someone who fights for people like me was the exact wording. And who were the South Carolina Republican primary voters? 92% white, 60% evangelical. Trump won 90% of those voters who said fights for people like me is what they want in a candidate. But Haley won 90% of those who said temperament is more important. Problem for Haley is there were a lot more fights for people like me voters among those 92% white and 60% evangelical South Carolina Republicans than there were temperament voters. Now, tomorrow comes Michigan, where Trump and Haley are at it again, and where Joe Biden might be cringing, even though he's running basically unopposed, because he has so alienated the important Arab-American population in that swing state. That could matter in November, not really tomorrow, but we may get an interesting taste of how tomorrow, one way or another. With us now, Jonathan Martin, Politico's senior political columnist and co-author of the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Some recent headlines from Jonathan. Get used to it. Biden isn't going anywhere. Forget no labels. Biden's third party peril is on the left. And Donald Trump wrecked the South Carolina primary. Jonathan, thanks for coming on at a busy moment for you. Welcome back to WNYC. Great to be back, Brian. Appreciate it. Well, we know Trump won the South Carolina primary. What do you mean in that headline by he wrecked it? Historically, the South Carolina primary was a lot of things. It it was uh, famously dirty or infamously uh, uh, dirty. It was uh, often decisive, especially in Democratic races, uh, sort of the, the crucial first uh, race in the South and the first time black voters had uh, a say in Democratic uh, primaries. And then obviously for Joe Biden, it was 
um, memorably important because it was the state that turned his campaign around in 20. It was boring this time. The South Carolina primary was never boring, and it was. Why was it boring? Because we're locked in uh, a demography is destiny primary in which we know the outcome of these states. They're basically preordained by the demographics, county by county of the state. The primary, Brian, has effectively become the general election when we know the results based on uh, gender, race, education, income level. And that's what's driving this race. That's why Nikki Haley effectively left for dead after New Hampshire, not a real primary, a zombie candidate, is still getting 40 percent of the vote because it's because, Brian, what matters here, what matters here is not. The, the sort of give and take of a campaign or gas or what have you, it's pure demography. And 35 to 40 percent of the GOP does not want Donald Trump. And they're not going anywhere. And let me play a clip to that effect. The final totals, yep. the last I saw, were, you know, right on these round numbers. Trump got 60 yep. percent of the vote yep. and Haley got 40 percent. Here's Nikki Haley yesterday on that particular split. Today in South Carolina, we're getting around 40 percent of the vote. That that's about what that's about what we got in New Hampshire too. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. Nikki Haley, I said yesterday, that was Saturday. So, Jonathan, given that kind of result in such a deeply conservative electorate as South Carolina's Republican primary voters are, does that describe a party unified behind Trump or a party at civil war with itself? Or how would you put it? Brian, I would put it like this. If we were in Europe or any parliamentary democracy, the Republican Party would have long since fractured into two parties. You would have had a pre-Trump kind of Bushian internationalist, pro-free trade, pro-immigration, um, you know, much more engaged uh, in the world uh, party. And you would have had a more populist isolationist party uh, led by Trump. And the fact that, that they're still under one roof, it's remarkable, a testament to the endurance of our two-party system in America. But it doesn't mean the marriage is going well, right? Yes, they're still living together, but it's a pretty fitful, a pretty fitful union because there are profound differences, and especially along class lines. You know, we don't like talking about class in American life too much, but that's really the, the dividing line here, Brian. If you look at the South Carolina map, you don't have to have uh, a sort of you know PhD in political science to grasp that anywhere you go and you find more voters with college degrees, you're going to find people who don't want Trump again, and that's the real sort of the the, the uh, dividing line. In this primary and really in politics broadly now in America. And we saw again in the exit polls in this primary, I didn't cite this one at the top, but it's pretty well known. Trump did so much better than Nikki Haley among those without college degrees. Yeah. Uh, yep. She, I would have to look at the number again, she either matched him or beat him among those right. with college degrees. That's right. That's right. And you just look at, you know, places like Charleston and Buford, which are full of retirees with money or recent college graduates. And, uh, you know, it matters, Brian, not because this primary suddenly is going to get competitive. It's not. Uh, We know where this is going. And Haley has a pretty firm ceiling because Trump has remade 
the GOP coalition. But it matters because of the general election, because how does Trump put this party, uh, this fractious party back together in the fall? I think Biden being the opponent helps and he'll get some of them back by saying the alternative is a sort of uh, enfeebled Joe Biden going into his mid 80s. But he's not going to get all of them back. He's going to lose some of them. You want to take a step back? Can you take this step back and yeah. and do a little basic civics just based on sure. something you said? If we were in many European countries, the Republican yeah. Party would have fractured, yeah. right, into, uh, yeah. you know, internationalist, um, yeah. et cetera, party and an isolationist, yeah. et cetera, yeah. party. Yeah. The Constitution doesn't say we have it. And by the way, we could have some of the same bit of conversation about the Democratic Party, but sure. there is no two-party system mandated in the Constitution. Why is it so rigidly like this? It's a great question, and uh, books and books filling up libraries have been written about this uh, over the decades. Um, look, I, I think the most immediate issue now is the polarization of the country, uh, the, the sort of power of negative partisanship, which is a poli-sci term for people voting against the opposition because of their hatred the opposition more than, than voting affirmatively right. for their side. That's the biggest driver that keep, keeps people locked into two parties. We're in an odd moment, Brian, where the parties themselves have never been weaker, but partisanship has never been stronger, which sounds incongruous, but that's where we're at when people are voting more against the other side than for their side. Yeah. Uh, the broader issue, Brian, is ballot access. Those are st- the, the structural challenges uh, are certainly in place for, for getting beyond two parties. And and we're going to get to third parties in this election as we go. I mentioned yep. uh, your article headline about Biden's third party challenge not being yep. from the center, the no labels party, but from the left. And we right. will get to that. Uh, but it was also interesting to me in the South Carolina exit polls to the point you were just making that a lot of Trump voters said they were affirmatively voting for him, right. not against the other person. So call it a get, call it a cult or call it whatever you want. Um, yep. You know, I don't think we'd find the same percentage among Democrats planning to vote for Biden. Like, yeah. wow, Joe Biden. Yeah. But for better or worse, uh, right. Trump has that. Well, I call it I call it a primary. Right. It, it, it's a fraction of, of the electorate. Right. right. It, it's a self-selecting right. audience. Exactly. That's going to show up on a Saturday in February. Um, <laughs> these are people who follow politics to some significant degree. But you mentioned the Democratic coalition, and this is important. You know, wh- what unifies Republicans is fear or contempt of the left and the, the real and perceived excesses of the left. Brian, what adheres the Democratic coalition is Trump. I mean, Trump is the biggest driver of both parties. He obviously controls the Republican Party for reasons we know. But he also effectively runs the Democratic Party because, you know, opposition to him is what has been, you know, cohering a coalition that ranges from socialists to Joe Manchin for the last nine years. And the day that Trump is gone, Democrats are going to have a profound challenge because he's their best unified. Um, And by the way, that's why Biden doesn't face real opposition in his own party, because that's the greatest sin in Democratic politics. You can't do anything to help Trump. And if you question Biden's fitness, you're effectively helping Trump. And you can't use the other tribe's talking points because then you're helping the bad guys. We'll get more into Biden when we get to part two of this conversation. 
And listeners, any reaction to the South Carolina Republican primary results or the narrative that some of the exit polling seems to reveal? Or anyone listening in Michigan right now want to tell us anything about the campaigning or the politics there on either the Republican or the Democratic side ahead of tomorrow's Michigan primary or anything else about the presidential race race right now for Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist for Politico, 212-433-WNYC. And when you're the senior political columnist for something called Politico, you know, you know you're in a prominent position. 212-433-WNYC, call or text 212-433-9692. How about from those divides and contradictions among the voters based on the South Carolina exit polls that I cited in the intro. What do you think of this big divide on abortion rights between Trump's 60 percent and Haley's 40 percent? They were so on the opposite side of abortion. Two-thirds of Trump voters said, yes, national ban, um, and two-thirds of Haley voters said no. Um, I think a lot of that is because much of Haley's vote, Brian, comes from what I would call kind of moderate Republicans, independents who are really in the political center, and some Democrats who are just trying to weaken Trump. And so that's a that's a demographic, a coalition, if you will, that obviously is, is not terribly enamored with a, a national ban uh, on abortion rights. Uh, a Republican, Republican coalition. Exactly. Um, right. And the big fights for people like me vote from the exit polls. It makes it seem like and you were making this point before. Yes. This is somewhat about tribalism or identity yes. politics yes. as much as about issues. Um, yep. How much do you think that's true in a party that claims to be against identity politics is one yep. of their biggest things? Oh, there's no question about it. No, the, the, um, uh, it's a huge driver. In fact, uh, you know, I would say it's probably the biggest driver in the Republican Party. Um, it's not an issues-oriented coalition. It's much more about uh, enmity and uh, uh, alarm about uh, you know, what they see as the kind of march of the left. And you know, some of that's wrapped up in issues, but it's much more of a cultural thing. Um uh, uh, you know, those guys are crazy and I don't love Trump, but look, he's the only one that's not them. Uh, Trump's got his fans. You, you know, you mentioned this, obviously he's got core support that, that's real, but I think Trump's broader support is much more based in opposition, uh, to the left than it is any enthusiasm, uh, about him. About identity. Did you see the coverage of the Trump rally or maybe you even covered it? at the Federation for Black Conservatives sure. in South Carolina from sure. from what I know Trump made headlines for one of his comments but right. but I read um, on one site that Trump asked black people in the room to raise their hands if they're for Trump I right. guess he was looking for a photo op but according to what I read only one person did and that the crowd at the Federation for Black Conservatives event was mostly white can you confirm that? <laughs> I wasn't there. I wasn't there, so I, I can't speak to the room. But look, I, look. I think he knows he's got to have some some elements of of black support, especially if he's going to be convicted by a, a DC jury that's likely to be 
uh, perhaps half or more African-American and by a presiding judge who's a black woman, uh, I think he recognizes that he has to have some support among black voters. Um, and Trump has kind of a feral genius about this when it comes to, um, uh, you know, trying to compare himself to the, the, the plight of some black voters, 90 percent of which I think dismiss his claims, but it doesn't stop him from from doing this and he feels persecuted, too. And um, uh, but look, that, that's what he does, that that's sort of his M.O., um, you know. Uh, he talks in a style that is like wildly out of date. I mean, it, it sounds like a 1960s New Yorker talking about the blacks. Uh, that That's the language he uses. And that's why I think he's got a real challenge uh, ahead of him, because, Brian, every time he speaks, he reminds people of why they voted him out in 2020. I said this before. I, Trump, I think, would be better off in the general, certainly in the primary, if he never left Mar-a-Lago. Um, and just made this entirely about Biden. Every time he speaks, he helps Biden. Why is Nikki Haley staying in the race? I think she wants to be the last person standing. I think she wants to stay through Super Tuesday. I got X number of delegates. I got X uh, number of millions of voters. Don't forget these big mega states that are voting on Super Tuesday are going to give her a lot of votes. It's not going to get her beyond that band of 35 to 42 percent which is basically her coalition. But Brian, in 28 or 32, she can say, I went toe-to-toe with Trump. I was the alternative. And look, do you guys want to wake up and go to rehab, Republicans? Or do you want to keep losing? If you want to start winning again, I, you know, I'm your gal. I think this is all aimed at trying to stick it out and be the last person in the race against him. Also, in case the legal system bites him in a way that forces him to drop out? But I don't think the timing works there, Brian, is the problem. Because, first of all, I don't think he's dropping out for any reason. And secondly, if for whatever reason, let's say that one of the, these trials came to a conclusion by the convention this summer, that's really unlikely timing-wise, the Republican convention would not dump him. They would nominate a felon. Um, I, I, just, I just don't think it's realistic, timing-wise or politically, that that, that would happen this year. Right. Or even with health concerns. Right. If Haley is running on being a new generation and it wouldn't and be her making yep. the point that, you know, um, Donald Trump is about as old as Joe Biden. Right. And if you look at their physical fitness for all people like to talk about Joe Biden's age and his gait is a little slow yep. and his speech yep. is sometimes a little halting. I mean, yep. he's in pretty good shape. Trump's the one who may be one cheeseburger away from something. I don't think Trump's riding the Peloton, uh, Brian, these days too much. And uh, so, yeah, now he not not known as a fitness buff, but apparently he has pretty good genes here. So um, uh, we shall see. But that's the, the other thing. Let's say that Trump, for whatever reason, health or you know, legal, I think it's unlikely. They wouldn't pick her as the alternative because she's not Trumpy. But right. Like if they had to pick somebody else, it would be in the image of Trump because it's his party. It wouldn't be the Wall Street Journal editorial page favorite who's running as a throwback to a pre-Trump party, right? Really? It would be somebody like Trump. Yeah, right. Vivek Ramaswamy would jump back in the race. Sam Junior, JD Vance, or right. Well, by the way, do you take it as another sign of Trump's wannabe authoritarianism that he's trying to get his um, 
sister, is it? Who's Lara Trump? I should know this. His daughter-in-law. His oh, Eric daughter-in-law, Biden. right. I knew she wasn't his daughter. His daughter-in-law to, to be the co-chair no of the National Republican Party. There was some talk that she would run for the Senate in North Carolina a couple of years ago. That didn't come through. So she's been eager to get involved in politics at some level. And um, uh, apparently the, the nepotism bylaws at the RNC are not that robust, Ryan, uh, uh, it turns out. Um, this is what Trump is. He's not a traditional American political figure. It's much more like, you know, uh, other countries where the family takes over the party or the government, like his son-in-law was the de facto secretary of state when he was president. Now his daughter-in-law wants to be co-chair of the party. Like that's just how they roll. And it's right. not uncommon in other countries. We just really haven't seen it here to this degree in this country. Now you could say the Kennedys, you know, Bobby Kennedy was obviously, uh, you know, the JFK's, uh, AG. That's probably the closest thing that we've seen in, in this country. But we're talking, you know, that's uh, obviously 60 plus years ago now. And um, it's a different, different breed of cat. Uh, there is pushback to the Laura Trump thing. I still think it'll happen. But she's obviously there as somebody who is going to be, be the voice for the family. And if push comes to shove and then it needs to use RNC money to pay Trump's legal bills, she's going to be, be the voice in the room saying we got to do it, you know. And if you look back at that Kennedy example, I know that comes up, and we're going to talk about RFK Jr. in a few minutes, but talking about RFK Sr., um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that President John Kennedy was looking to do some things for the country that he thought his brother would be very well qualified and well-suited to do, and they were on a mission to do good as they saw it. Trump appointing his, or, or he doesn't get to appoint her, um, but Trump trying to get his daughter-in-law installed as party chair yeah. seems like just a pure consolidation of power, like he's always talking about loyalty. Yeah, I think it's more akin to the kind of uh, Latin America, you know, you know Claudio uh, sort of play of, of taking over uh, a party or taking over a government and consolidating power. Uh, you know, yeah, like you could at least say that you know, Bobby Kennedy was what was more qualified to be AG. Still nepotistic. I still think wouldn't happen in this day and age in a more traditional political party now. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the Trump effort with Jared Kushner uh, as a, a developer turned de facto foreign minister and his daughter-in-law, who was a producer for Inside Edition and a trainer becoming co-chair of the National Party. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say it's much more like uh, a different country. Sure. And on this Monday after the South Carolina primary, Sam and Q Gardens, originally from South Carolina. You're on WNYC with Jonathan Martin from Politico. Hi, Sam. Morning, Brian. Brian and Jonathan. Hi. 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 How are you? I'm okay. I I had opinions about uh, Nikki Haley, and and I had perspectives, if you're interested in them, that I could offer... Okay. Yeah. That I could offer because I happened to be visiting my hometown the week weekend after the 2016 election, attending What's your hometown? Uh, per- Spartanburg. Yep. Okay. It's in it's in it's in northwest South Carolina. I know where it is in the upstate. Sure, of course. Yeah, and so I was attending the church that I was brought up in, a, a predominantly black church, and the 
attitude there is, was, woe is me, how awful is this, how awful. And I turned on the, uh, the predominantly white churches on television, and it was a very celebratory mood, and how wonderful that this has happened. And, uh, and I have a brother who's a, de- who's a deacon in a predominantly white church. It's sort of a, 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 maybe a small version of a mega church. And I think he probably voted the way that most people in his predominantly white congregation voted. And I spoke with my sister on election day, and I've jokingly said to her, I asked her, did she make Donald Trump happy today? And she says, well, actually, and I was sort of holding my breath when she told me that she had indeed voted for Donald Trump. This is the sister who's been a member of this church, uh, this predominantly African-American church for her, essentially her whole life. And she and my oldest brother are often in conversation, you know, with him doing wellness checks on her since she lives alone. And I think he convinced her that voting for Trump was to vote in favor of the unborn. And so yeah. she actually did vote for Trump for that reason. Yeah. Sam, Sam thank you. Interesting. Uh, yeah, Jonathan, interesting perspective, even though Absolutely, it's from the early, earlier I mean, election. Yeah. I, look, you know, uh, there's a significant amount of amount of voters in this country who are single issue voters uh, on both sides of the abortion issue. Uh, certainly in the in the conservative white church, that is a signal issue. And Trump appointed the three justices who overturned uh, legal abortion in America, which I think by far is his most consequential uh, uh, policy uh, accomplishment. Ironically, it's the one that he wants to talk about the least. Because for personal and political reasons, he's not really uh, all that uh, thrilled about the issue. Uh, but that's the great irony of our times that, that that Donald Trump became the warrior for culturally conservative Americans and gave them a landmark victory that he now won't talk about as he tries to reclaim uh, a second uh, a second win, uh, which is all to say that God has a sense of humor, Brian. God has a sense of humor. Yes, she does. When we continue in a minute with Jonathan Martin from Politico, we will turn the page and um, from looking back to Saturday's Republican primary to looking ahead to tomorrow's for both parties, we'll uh, get much more on the Joe Biden track here when we continue in a minute. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Jonathan Martin. Politico's senior political columnist and co-author of the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Let's start talking about Joe Biden and then about Biden in Michigan tomorrow. You wrote a Politico article called Get Used to It. Biden isn't going anywhere. Who thinks he might be? Uh, Civilian uh, voters in America. (laughs) The gap between the sort of everyday voter and news consumer and the political insider in the Democratic Party, whether it's an elected official, a staffer, or a donor, is just canyon size when it comes to Biden. Um, and, uh, you know, it's remarkable how many people think the party can just snap its fingers and dump Biden and replace him with candidate X. Like, that's a Netflix movie, uh, Brian. That's Hollywood. <laughs> that doesn't happen in modern American politics. Parties want to convey stability and order 
and especially Democrats these days, which have become so much more orderly and top down and hierarchical. They make the House of Windsor look chaotic. I mean, it's just incredible. And the reason for that is because the party is so petrified by Trump, it has made them a spit and polish party. And so, no, they're not going to dump the sitting president in the middle of the election year because that, they believe, would only help Joe Biden. And for those who say, well, no, there's going to be a convention, they'll get rid of him. Tell me what the forcing mechanism is. Tell me tell me how Joe Biden decides to step down, because if nobody's going to make him, then he's not going to do it. And the only way you could make him do it is public pressure. And if you can't find me, Brian, one Democratic governor or member of Congress who was willing to say that Biden should step down, then there's not going to be any public pressure. There's just not, you know. We had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the show last week after we had a political science professor who wrote an article in The Atlantic. Maybe you saw it. Uh, that political science professor, very anti-Trump and saying, hey, Dems, get real. Biden right. is not your best option. He might right. actually lose to Trump. We've right. really got to find somebody else. And there's a deep right. bench of governors and sure. other people. Sure. And we had callers and texters all over the map on that. People, Democrats, were so yeah. so divided between a lot of people who thought, you know, yeah, we should really do this. And a lot of people who thought that that's completely nuts. Um, but then AOC came on and, you know, we know she represents uh, a part of the party that is among the most skeptical of Joe Biden's right. policies. And she was absolutely rock solid behind him staying in yes that's a great illustration brian is that yes folks from the academy or from my business can write and speculate all they want about biden's prospects and why the party should dump him but the party isn't there by the party i mean the elected officials uh in the party biden's inner circle and if they're not willing to exert public pressure on Biden, then Biden's going to run again. Because guess what? Joe Biden likes being president. He thinks he's good at it. And he wants to be president for four and a half more years. So um, I just think that this is all such fantasy talk. Uh, and it's so out of whack with the modern Democratic Party, which is a do no harm, play it safe party. That's why Joe Biden was the nominee in 2020 in the first place. And I think people forget what the party has become. Uh, and they don't take risk. They don't cotton to insurgents. They want to keep Trump out of power, and they're not going to do anything to imperil that. However, there is a rising call for change on at least one issue in the Democratic yep. Party. Yes. Tomorrow's primary is in Michigan. Biden has no real opposition, but the war in Gaza, as I don't have to tell you, right. has the meaningfully large Arab-American population. They are so alienated. Here is a clip from NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday last month of Michigan resident Khalid Tarani from a group that has formed called Abandon Biden. We will fight Joe Biden. We will make sure that we will punish Joe Biden by making him one-term president. If Trump becomes president, you know, I'm sure America will survive uh, Trump just like it survived him first time. It will survive uh, Trump once again. How widespread is the abandoned Biden sentiment in Michigan, as far as you can tell? And is there going to be any way to gauge it in tomorrow's primary? Yeah, I think we'll be able to tell by how many folks don't vote for Joe Biden. 
and either vote for an alternative or or write in uh, something, right? And he, here's an actual interesting test is uh, who will do better in Michigan? Uh, Nikki Haley with her pre-Trump, uh, you know, old guard coalition or the, the non-Biden vote? Uh, I think that'll tell us something about uh, which of the two quasi-incumbents faces the bigger challenge uh, with their coalition, Brian, in Michigan. You said write-in. I was wondering if a write-in campaign would emerge, not that people thought that Biden would actually lose the Michigan primary, but as a, a unifying name yeah. in a protest vote. But I haven't yeah. seen it. Is there any such thing? Yes, but it's not writing in a name. It's writing, it's writing in uncommitted. Ah, uncommitted. Yeah. So that's something to watch for tomorrow night. That's what's to watch for. How many Democratic primary votes does Joe Biden not get? Because they either go to somebody else or, you know, just, you know, writing in something. Um, uh, that's exactly right. I think th- that's what's going to be so telling. Look, I think Brian, eventually Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Biden would have the advantage in a head to head race because uh, American voters would be reminded of why they ejected Trump four years ago uh, because Trump just doesn't wear well. I think Biden's biggest challenge, I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, is not Trump. It's the threat of, of a third or a fourth party running. The reason why Biden won in 20 and Hillary didn't in 16 was because Biden effectively had a head-to-head race against Trump four years ago in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't in 2016. And Biden's coalition is so tenuous because it extends between far left and really center right that any damage, any any sort of loosening uh, of that coalition from either extreme could upset the entire thing. And so, yeah, if Biden loses 10,000 votes in Ann Arbor, and 10,000 more in Dearborn to third-party candidates. That's devastating to his math. On this track, Sue in Hunterton County in Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Sue. Thank you for calling in. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm a Palestinian-American, and I would, uh, I, I guess I don't call myself either a Democrat or Republican. I normally just go by the you know, who's running and are they good for America sort of thing. So uh, I would never have, I never would vote for Trump. Uh, I haven't, uh, and the, but unfortunately, I cannot with good conscience vote for Biden unless he does, you know, he, he makes a significant change in his stance uh, at, with respect to Israel and Gaza war. Um, I love what they're doing in Michigan, uh, and I hope that that becomes uh, other states could could follow. Sue, thank you. Thank you very much. And further to that, I think, Adam in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, but votes in Michigan. Adam, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. How's it going? Um, thanks for having me on. I, I tried to call in a few weeks ago uh, on this issue, um, but I didn't get on the air, and I'm actually really pleased that the media is finally covering the situation in um, in Michigan. So I'm a lifelong Michigan resident. Obviously, I live in Bay Ridge now um, for, for school, but I'm still registered to vote in Michigan. I used to live in Hamtramck, which is a little town inside of Detroit, which is majority Yemeni and Bengali. And I can tell you that the situation in the Detroit area is not looking good for the Biden campaign. Most of the people I know are voting uncommitted in tomorrow's primary. I voted uncommitted myself. And this is not a fringe campaign. I mean, it's endorsed by Rashida Tlaib, 
uh, Abe Ayash, who's in the state house. And I think it's sending a message to the Democrats that they could lose in November. And yeah. I think it's important to stress that Wayne County has a higher number of Arab Americans than in New York City. So you simply mm-hmm. can't win the state of Michigan without winning Wayne County, which is the most populous county by a large margin. Right. That's so I'm really choice. pleased that the media yeah. is finally paying attention to this. Because I feel like a lot of good-hearted people are saying to themselves, I can't vote for this guy who is funding a plausible genocide, according to the UN High Court, even if the alternative is Trump. So this is a serious matter, and it shows that Gaza is a serious problem for the Democrats. Thank you. How do you think you, as a Michigan voter, would vote in November, assuming it's Biden-Trump and assuming Biden doesn't make a big turn on this issue? It's horrible because, you know, no one wants Trump. But at the same time, as a morally conscious person, if Biden doesn't change course on Palestine, it would be very difficult to vote for him. I mean, there's 30,000 people who have been slaughtered now by Israel, and Biden has the power to to end that. Um, and I think that it would just be really difficult to vote for Biden. Adam, thank you very much for your call. Um, and, you know, he's talking about Michigan. Michigan right. obviously in play tomorrow in Michigan, right. which went by such a slim margin in 2020 right. <clears throat> is is just about necessary for either candidate to win the primary. But it's not just Michigan. I saw a Siena poll of New York State Democrats, yeah. which found opinions on the war have changed dramatically from October right. Even in New York, at first, 57% supported more military aid to Israel. Now right. it's about tied around 45% to 45%. Right. Well, uh, the Democratic coalition is changing on this issue. But this is why Hamas did the, the, the slaughter on October 7th. They knew Bibi would overreact because he's trying to retain his his power and his whole calling card was security. And now he'd have to act tough to retain his political standing and they go into Gaza and do this. And it's all playing out, I think, as, as Hamas uh, uh, sort of grotesquely planned uh, with their what they are killing that the precipitated this. It's so two things. First of all, to that caller, Brian, um, of the idea that he said twice, the media is finally covering this. I got news for you. There has been more coverage about Biden's challenge in Michigan in the last two months. Uh, if he hadn't seen it until recently, he wasn't looking very hard. It's been covered extensively in the last couple of months. All right. Second of all, he's right. Like this is an existential challenge for Joe Biden. And it's not just Michigan. If you look at any of the competitive states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, this is a problem for Biden with voters under 40, the far left uh, elements of the Democratic Party, especially. And he, I, I think Biden is shifting some on this issue and trying to be a little bit tougher uh, on Bibi, at least in private, and taking some steps in public. Uh, but it's it's just not who Biden is. Biden is, you know, to his core, uh, a pro-Israel guy, not a Bibi fan. I I wrote in my column a couple of weeks ago that that he's he's called he's called Bibi uh, a bad fucking guy in private. Pardon my French, but that's the exact quote. Uh, and so Biden doesn't love Bibi, but Biden does feel a kinship to Israel that he has for his entire career in politics that I think younger Democrats don't fully appreciate. And that's what's driving a lot of us. 
So for those of you who just heard a little gap in your audio, uh, Jonathan just uh, said a word that you can say on Netflix, but you can't say on the radio. So uh, that's why a little gap. But I think you got the gist. Um, by the way, if people are looking for an alternative third party candidate in November to Joe Biden because of this issue, RFK Jr. is not that person, right? I've been reading where he is saying staunchly pro-Israel things, basically trying to portray himself as, you know, the most pro-Israel candidate west of Tel Aviv. So that's something to know about RFK Jr. now, right? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I should have said bad, bad effing guy. Sorry about that uh, to the uh, delicate ears of, of your listeners. Um, but it's not my being, listeners, by the way. It's the FCC, our overlords okay. in the Washington. The delicate ears but of, go ahead. of the effing FCC. There we go. Um, no, look, I think Biden, uh, the point I was making is, is that Biden in his DNA is a pro-Israel guy, has been for half a century, even if he's not a big fan of the current prime minister over there. Yeah, no, it's an important point on RFK Jr. Uh, and he's actually had internal dissension over this issue. He's much more of a pro-Israel guy uh, than than his coalition of, of at least sort of right now uh, may realize, which is why, Brian, I think it's really it's really interesting to see. Uh, will Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, get on the ballot in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania? Mm. Because she is much more pro-Palestinian. And I think that's where a lot of these younger voters and pro-Palestinian voters could go part. It was with Stein, not, not RFK. And Cornell West? Yeah, I think it's tougher for him to get on the ballot, Brian, because he's not going to have a party line. You know, Stein's trying uh, to use the, the Green Party line, whereas yeah. West doesn't have a party line. By the way, Aaron Bushnell, for people who haven't heard that name, active duty member, of the United States Air Force, set himself on fire over the weekend outside the Israeli embassy in D.C. He died. Remember, that's how the Arab Spring started. Uh, a Tunisian vendor, merchant, set himself on fire. And, of course, there was a lot ready to explode in that part of the world, but that was the spark. I'm not saying this is going to be the same yeah. thing. But when else have you heard of anybody self-immolating, not to mention an active duty member of the United States military, to protest the U.S. government's um, position on on the war in Gaza? I, I don't know if you think that starts anything larger in a political sense that comes back to Joe Biden. I think we're going to see immense pressure on Biden to move away from the Israel, the sort of pro-Israeli line and, and take a harder public tack against BB in the next months to come. And, you know, I think the, the fantasy Netflix talk about Biden being dumped isn't largely a waste of time. I think what is more consequential is the, the, the internal uh, pressure on Biden to move away from Israel, because that is something that is actually in play, Brian. And I think that will shape this race for precisely the reasons you're talking about. There is real upheaval among younger progressive voters about Biden's stance on this war. And you're right. Absent the Vietnam War, where you had a, a draft of, of young American men you know, being sent to war, it, it's hard to recall something as galvanizing for younger voters uh, in modern times uh, as what's happening in recent months uh, with regard to this conflict in the Middle East. 
and Biden's going to be under huge pressure to address it in the next six to eight months. Well, we will see what happens in the next 24 to 48 hours in the Michigan primary tomorrow, both on the Democratic and the Republican side. For today, we thank Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist for Politico and author of the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Jonathan, we really appreciate it. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. I'm going to go wash my mouth out with soap right now. Sorry about that. Fifteen lashes. Self-administered. All right. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Much more to come.